If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, the third chapter. I want to read to you this morning, 1 Kings 3, verses 3 through 14. And if you're with us and able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. Now, Solomon loved to walk in the laws of his father David, with the exception that he also sacrificed and burned incense at the shrines. The king went to the great shrine at Gibeon in order to sacrifice there. He used to offer a thousand entirely burned offerings on that altar. The Lord appeared to Solomon at Gibeon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. Solomon responded, You showed so much kindness to your servant, my father David, when he walked before you in truth, righteousness, and with a heart true to you. You've kept this great loyalty and kindness for him and have now given him a son to sit on his throne. And now, Lord my God, you have made me your servant, king in my father David's place. But I'm young and inexperienced, and I know next to nothing. But I'm here your servant, in the middle of the people, you have chosen a large population that can't be numbered or counted due to its vast size. Please give your servant a discerning mind in order to govern your people and to distinguish good from evil because no one is able to govern this important people of yours without your help. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had made this request. God said to him, oh, because you have asked for this instead of requesting long life, wealth, or victory over your enemies, asking for discernment so as to acquire good judgment, I will now do just what you said. Look, I hereby give you a wise and understanding mind. There has been no one like you before now, nor will there be anyone like you afterward. I now also give you what you didn't ask for, wealth and fame. There won't be a king like you as long as you live. And if you walk in my ways and obey my laws and commands just as your father David did, then I will give you a very long life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, if you're a fan like me of... Uh, the musical Hamilton, uh, you know that there is a a lot to like in Lin-Manuel Miranda's amazing creation. First of all, it's just really complicated. So if you've seen it or been able to see it live, you know the music's like really complicated. In fact, the first thing I thought after seeing the musical was it's going to be a long time before a high school tries to pull that one off, right? And not only is the music complicated and fascinating and interesting, but, but the choreography and the staging is simple in one way, but it's so complex and intricate and amazing in another. But more than the music and the choreography, what makes it beautiful and complicated is the way that it, it both tells a part of American history that, that we sometimes overlook, but it also subverts that history. So it tells that history imaginatively and and beautifully through music and through all this movement, but it also subverts that history by retelling it through, through bodies and perspectives of persons of color 
who were often marginalized by and sometimes excluded from that very story. But one of the things I love most about Hamilton is the way that it captures the morally complicated nature of Alexander Hamilton himself. Was Hamilton the overlooked founding father who overcame his rugged and questionable upbringing to educate himself, become a significant hero in the Revolutionary War, save the Constitution through his prolific writing, and then create the economic system that would not only unify the colonies, but eventually make the United States one of, if not the most powerful and prosperous nations in the world? Yes. It's part of the story that the musical tells, but... Was Hamilton also a ruthlessly driven climber of the ladder of success who became a crazed workaholic, nearly destroyed his marriage through an illicit affair, undid his political future by trying to cover that affair up, and then died foolishly in a duel right after his son had been killed in the exact same way? Yes! So here's the point. Part of what's so fascinating about the musical Hamilton is is that somehow Miranda is able to tell both of those stories at once. In fact, the musical ends with a song that asks this question, who tells your story? And in the end, you're left to wonder, is this story really about Alexander at all? Or is it about Eliza who loved Alexander through all of his faults and made sure that the best parts of his legacy was kept and embodied and remembered. And as we remember Hamilton and use our $10 bills, should we remember him as a really good guy or a really broken guy? And I would say the answer to that again is yes. So I love the section of the Old Testament that we're in. Um, if you've been with us following along, we've been in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings for the last couple of weeks. And They are amazing books. Some of the best storytelling in the whole Old Testament happen in these two, these four really, but in the books of Samuel and the books of Kings. But the older that I get and the more I study them, I've grown to love them for their complicated views of the main characters. Contemporary scholars largely agree, so let me get nerdy for just a minute. Contemporary scholars agree that what we get in Samuel and Kings is actually the merging of two very different tellings of the stories of the kings. One of those tellings of the stories of the kings is very positive. In fact, if if you are familiar with the book of Judges, over and over again, the book of Judges will say, here's why everything's chaotic mess, because there's no king in Israel, and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. So there's a tradition that said what we need is a king. And now that we have kings, in particular Saul, David, and Solomon, One of those traditions tells their story in a powerful way as really good, especially David and Solomon, and almost makes them not only prolific in the ways that they fight battles and not only narrate them as as these two leaders with these amazing hearts after God, but they also narrate them as the kind of embodiment of what a king ought to be in the future and the kind of leader that Israel ought to look for as they move forward. But there's another tradition that looks at that and says, wait a minute. Yeah, David killed Goliath, but he also committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed. 
And he had a heart after God, but there was a lot of political scheming in there too. And, and the same is true for Solomon, that there are all these narratives that show up in the first part of 1 Kings that begin to tell a different version of Solomon. And so here's what scholars think, that somewhere down the line, a Hebrew Lin-Manuel Miranda, or a whole community of them, took those two perspectives and divinely inspired ways wove them together to give us what we know as the scripture. But this morning, unfortunately, I think for some reason, as readers, we have a tendency to only pay attention to one side of that biblical tradition. So that growing up in the church, and and I, I know we come by this honestly, growing up in the church, the story I read to you this morning from 1 Samuel chapter, or from 1 Kings chapter 3, the story of Samuel asking for wisdom, I think If you would have asked me at 18, who is Solomon, that's the only story I probably could have told you. Now I get that all of his wives and concubines are hard stories to tell on felt boards during children's church, right? (laughs) And I get that David and Goliath is a really wonderful VeggieTales story and his adultery with Bathsheba, not so much, right? So I get why we come to that honestly, but But this week, I came across a wonderful essay, and I'm going to borrow a bit from a a woman named Debbie Thomas, who wrote a wonderful two-part essay on the life of Solomon. And it goes like this. Here's the first part. Once upon a time, there lived a young prince. When his father died, he assumed his divinely appointed throne, married a beautiful princess from a neighboring kingdom, and settled down to govern his people. Soon afterwards, God appeared to him in a dream and promised to grant the young royal whatever his heart desired. Being a humble man, the new king refused to ask for wealth, power, or long life, and instead replied, I'm only a child. Therefore, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people and to discern between good and evil. God was so pleased with the king's request, he promised not only to grant it, to make the king the wisest human being in history, but to grant him every other measure of greatness as well, untold wealth, matchless honor, and a long life. In time, the king's reputation for brilliance spread across the land. Nobles traveled from distant shores to hear his pithy sayings and witness his wise judgments. In accordance with his wisdom and God's blessing, the king's wealth and power grew beyond measure. He made strategic political and economic alliances, maintained fleets of ships, built gorgeous temples and palaces, traded in luxuries such as gold, silver, and ivory, penned the greatest wisdom literature of his time, presided over the golden age of his kingdom, and finally handed his throne to his son after a peaceable reign of 40 years. Ah, amen. My guess is that's the version that you were taught. I was taught for the most part in children's church, in felt boards and pop-up books. And so the question this morning as we look at this text is this, is Solomon the wise and godly king who brought perhaps the greatest period of peace and unity in Israel's history? The answer is yes. But there's another way to tell Solomon's story, and here's how she tells that one. Once upon a time, there lived a young prince, When his father died, he ordered the murder of his older brother, the rightful heir to the throne, and took over the kingdom by stealth and bloodshed. After spending the early days of his reign carrying out the vengeance killings his father had requested, he set out to build the kingdom of his dreams, a kingdom of wealth, prestige, and power. The king's appetites were beyond excessive. To support his extravagant lifestyle, he levied taxes his subjects couldn't bear. 
to police knowledge, he gathered the surrounding world's wisdom traditions to himself. To complete complete his lavish building projects, he drafted thousands of people into forced labor. To satisfy his lust, he assembled a harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines. To quell his spiritual restlessness, he constructed pagan shrines and offered worship to gods who demanded child sacrifice. The results of his choices were dire. By the end of his reign, his people could no longer bear the crushing burdens of taxation and slavery he had placed upon them. In the wake of his paganism, they could no longer differentiate between idolatry and worship. Because he had monopolized God to justify his personal brand of wisdom, his subjects had nowhere to turn when they sought divine discernment or reparation. The king soon found himself confronted by enemies. And after his untimely death, his son tried to force the disgruntled masses back into servitude. But when they resisted, a civil war that would last for decades broke out. And the kingdom split in two. And the famed king's once golden dreams dissolved into utter chaos. The question is, is that the story of Solomon? The answer is yes. So which is the true story? Was he the embodiment of godly wisdom and discerning leadership, or was he the leader who spent almost twice as long building his own house as he spent building the Lord's? Was he the hoped-for son of David who would unify the often divided tribes of Israel and who made sure that every Israelite got to live, as chapter 4 will say, got to live and eat securely under their own vine and fig tree? Or was he a new pharaoh who grew so power-hungry and oppressive that the whole thing fell apart? (laughs) The answer is yes. And so this morning, as we think about this amazing story in 1 Kings 3, but we think about the otherwise complicated history of Solomon, what do we do with it? And why is it important, I think, not just to wrestle with this beautiful text that I read to us this morning, but also wrestle with the complicated nature of Solomon and his life and legacy? I would say to us this morning that part of the reason why it's so important for us to wrestle with that is because we look at Solomon and David and his complications and Saul and his complications, and if we're not careful, we will fail to see our own complicated reflection in them. For our we people who often do the things that the Lord desires and love, and are we people who mess up and sin and hurt and damage each other and end up going down roads the Lord would wish we would not? Yes. And I don't know why necessarily, but, but my sense is as a culture, we're not very good at telling the fullness of those complicated stories. And so even though I would love to argue that the reason I only knew the good parts of Solomon's life growing up was because those were the only ones appropriate for children's church. There's a part of me that thinks even as I'm telling those stories today, a part of you is going, why did I come today? I could have taken one more Sunday off before the holidays were really over. Do we have to know those negative parts of David? Do we have to remember the complications of Solomon? I'm, I don't know if you know this about me, I do a fair number of funerals, um, but I was, um, years ago, 
I did a funeral, and, and you probably know this. There's a kind of line among preachers that every person becomes a saint at their funeral. Um, but I was doing a funeral for, for a person who had had a pretty complicated life. And as is typical of a funeral, we, we told the good parts of that person's life, and we showed a slideshow that had all the good and happy pictures. I could tell that one of the children who didn't talk during the service, and really not only didn't talk, but acted a bit angry and had their arms crossed, and I could tell there was just something emotionally going on within them. After the service was over, I, I either made the the right move as a pastor or the wrong move to say, are you okay? And what came out was just all of this anger from this person who had just sat through all of these very positive and lovely things that were just said about this important adult in this person's life. But almost everything that they had experienced from that person was not the positive but the negative. And this person just stood and yelled at me, angry at this person more than at me, but angry that we hadn't told the truth. Angry that, that their life had been scrubbed. And I do think there, there's something about us, even culturally, that struggles and resists not just telling the really great parts about who we are as a nation and as a people, but struggles to tell the parts that we don't really like to talk about. And as churches and communities, we love to highlight all of those wonderful moments where heaven and earth kissed and where, where God has broken in and people's lives have been changed, but we're not as good at telling about those board meetings that ended not well. And people who left a community not transformed but damaged, right? And so part of the reason I think it's important for us to wrestle with the, the complicatedness of David and Solomon and Saul is because if we can't wrestle with their complicatedness, we will have no ability to wrestle with our complicatedness. For we are complicated. And there's a question that I find so important in in 1 Kings chapter 3, I know that we oftentimes read the story this way. I know I did as a kid that, that David, or that Solomon, I'm sorry, goes to the high place at Gibeon and, and God shows up and says to him, basically like a genie in the bottle, hey, you get one wish. I, I don't know if you played this game as a kid, but if you played the game, if you ever had a genie in a bottle and they gave you three wishes, I know you know this as a kid, you're supposed to wish for the two really good things, but then you're supposed to ask for more wishes. And so I tended to read this text that way as though God was going to be Solomon's genie and give him whatever he wished for. But I don't think it's only that or just that. But there is a tendency for God to ask us on a regular basis this question. What do you want? What do you want? I have a theologian friend who has really messed up my readings of the Gospels because he pointed out that with the exception of, the only exception I can find is um, there's a story where Jesus is with Peter and the disciples and they've been following him for a while. It actually shows up like in Mark chapter 5 and he turns to them and says a question like this, who do people say that I am? Or more importantly, who do you say that I am? 
But he asked that question only after they'd been with him a while. But my friend pointed out to me that, and I can't find an exception, but every person Jesus encounters, the kind of question Jesus asks them first is this question, what do you want? What are you looking for? What is it that you seek? And I want to be careful today, but the point my friend points out is that Jesus doesn't ask them, what do you think? Or what do you know? Or what do you believe? And I want to be careful because what we know or think or believe is important. But my friend is trying to make the argument that as much as Jesus cares about the thoughts in our head, he cares even more about the desires of our heart. And so asks us, what do you want? What are you looking for? What is it that you desire? If you have your Bible still with you, turn with me to Matthew, the sixth chapter, to a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's one of only a couple of times where Solomon's mentioned in the New Testament. Towards the end of chapter 6, Jesus, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, says this. This is verse 25. Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds in the air. They don't sow seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they? And who among you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? Listen, notice how the lilies in the field grow. They don't wear themselves out with work and they don't spin cloth. But I say to you, and here he is, that even Solomon in all his splendor wasn't dressed like one of these. If God dresses grass in the field so beautifully, even though it's alive today and tomorrow it's thrown into the furnace, won't God do much more for you, you people of weak faith? Therefore, don't worry and say, what are we going to eat and what are we going to drink or what are we going to wear? Gentiles long for those things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And here's the key verse, of course. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Those familiar words, I, I struggle a little bit that in English we translate what Jesus is saying here as worry. Why do you worry about what you're going to eat? Why do you worry about what you're going to wear? Why do you worry about where you're going to live? Because I, I think that that allows us then to read the text as though this is a text where Jesus just doesn't want us to be stressed out. Why are you so worried all the time? Stop worrying. Don't worry. Be happy. Right? Don't worry about it. But it's not really in the context that Jesus is concerned about our stress level about those things. But he's really asking this question, what is it that you want? And why is it that in the language of St. Augustine, why is it that you have disordered your desires so that you've put a priority on what you will eat? Why is it that you've put the priority on what you will wear? Why is it that you've put the priority on where you will live? God knows that you need all those things, but why have you made those the central aspects of your desire? And I love the way the Common English Bible translates then Matthew 6.33. So desire first the kingdom. Some of you have been around this community for a long time know that that's that verse is so central to NNU's identity. Seek first the kingdom of God. And, and for a long time in the old chapel, um, there were those words across the front of the chapel that said, seek first the kingdom of God. 
if I had a time machine and could go back in time, I'd mess with that sign and do the common English Bible version of it. Desire first the kingdom. Because so much of what I think those of us who work with students across the street, so much of what we're trying to do is not just get new thoughts in their heads, but part of what it means to have what Solomon asked for, a discerning heart, is to learn to have our hearts desire the right things. To love the kingdom, to desire the kingdom, to want the kingdom, to want the things of God. And the invitation is for God to be allowed to reorder our desires. And again, it's not that Solomon didn't need security and long life and the means by which the kingdom could operate. God knows he needs those things. But what's beautiful in 1 Kings chapter 3 is he gets the right answer. First and foremost is the humility to know I have no ability to do what you have called me to. But secondly, I need a discerning heart. I need a heart that hungers for the right thing. And God says, oh, that is such the right answer. And so I think we have to wrestle with these texts to wrestle with our complicated nature. And part of what, I, part of what I've discovered as we've gone through these, these last few weeks is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but, but there are times in First and Second Samuel and First and 2 Kings where, the, where God, God's words and God's intentional actions kind of disappear for about eight chapters. In fact, it happens here. God hadn't shown up in the latter part of David's, ministry, uh, David's uh, reign. And here in 1 Kings chapter 3, God shows up. It, it makes me suspicious and wonder, God hasn't spoken directly, but that doesn't mean that people haven't used God's name a lot. And that later in Solomon's life, as his desires become disordered, it's not that he stops using the name of Yahweh. It's just that he starts desiring the wrong thing and put Yahweh's name on it. Because part of what makes us so complicated is our unbelievable self-deceptive ability to believe we are going after the things God wants us to go after when it's really what we want and we've just put God's name on it. And the problem is that takes a kind of honesty and vulnerability that every single one of us resists with all of our energies. And so we have to keep coming back and hearing the Lord ask us this question, what is it that you want? And is it the things that I want for you? But to me, the good news of this text is that when we finally learn to want and desire the right things, God is faithful to form our hearts to hunger for the things of God in our life and to allow those other things to fall into the right order. One of the psalms for this last week was Psalm 42. It's a beautiful psalm, um, and it opens with some really familiar words. The words are these, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. As I read that psalm, forgive me, I, I'm, I'm so shaped now by my suspicious readings of David and Solomon. I'm a little suspicious of Psalm 42 also. 
as I read it, I wondered, is the psalmist saying, oh, I finally got my loves ordered, oh God. As the deer pants for water, so I pant for you. Oh, right? like, so I desire what you want, God. Because if you read the rest of the psalm, the rest of the psalm is kind of distressful. So I wonder if the opening of Psalm 42 is, at least as I pray it, is less of an affirmation that I've learned to have the right heart. But maybe it is just simply a prayer that says, as the deer longs for water, help me, O God, to have a heart that hungers after you. Order my heart, order my loves, order my desires in ways that draw me close to you and to the purposes that you have for me. There's a hymn that we sing, um, kind of a new version of it that we're closing with today, and I, I love the line, Come thou fount of every blessing. And this is the line I love. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. I don't know how many of you have ever learned to play guitar or some other stringed instrument. There is nothing worse than standing up to lead worship and realizing that somehow your guitar fell over or somebody bumped it and one of the keys got moved and all of a sudden one of those strings is out of tune. It is terrible to stand up and strum it for the first time and you realize, oh, something is wrong here. And you want with all your might to stop and say, sorry, let me fix this because this is bad. Every time we sing that hymn, that's the image that I have there's something in us that realizes when we strum the chords of our heart, if we're honest with ourselves, some of those strings are not in tune. And so like Solomon, we pray, God, here's really what we want when we're at our best selves. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to your grace. God, help us today. Um, Your divinely inspired word gives us really complicated pictures of the people we tend to think of as heroes of faith, folks like David and Solomon in particular. But I thank you that they're complicated because, oh my word, how complicated are we? What a mixed bag of desire and godliness and brokenness, holiness and selfishness. And so give us uh, your spirit, a, a spirit of humility that is able to pray like Psalm 51, search me, O God, create in me a clean heart. Know our ways. It's silly that we hide those broken parts from each other and then try to hide them from you for you see them clearly. And so our prayer today is that you'd help us to see them clearly, as painful as that may be. And by your grace and by your mercy, reorder our hearts today, 
Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune our hearts today to be reflections of your grace. For we pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand together. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious song Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mountain, fix upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. And I was lost in utter darkness till you came and rescued me. And I was bound by all my
voices I was lost in utter darkness till you came and rescued me I was bound by all my sin when your love came and set me free now my soul can sing now my heart has found a home. Now your grace is always with me, and I'll never be alone. If you've listened well this morning, each and every moment, the Spirit of God, when our hearts are attuned to it, asks us something like this, what do you want? What do you desire? What is it that you are searching for? And if you've listened well, one of the hardest things for us to do is be honest in our response about that. But thanks be to God that he who knows our hearts has the grace to not only forgive us, but to transform us, to teach us how to sing a new song and for our hearts to find a home in him. And around here, when our hearts and our loves are shaped by him, we just call that the sanctified life. And that's why this benediction is for us this morning. May the God of peace himself, may he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, and our bodies be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls us and inquires of us and pursues us, he is faithful. He will not stop until he finishes the sanctifying work in us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.